This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. It's the Mayor's Town Hall. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here today, and uh, we are going to open the lines up and take your phone calls. You know the number, 905-645-3221, 645-3221. If you're on a cell phone, that's a toll-free number at star 9900. And, of course, email bkelly at 900chml.com. And on Twitter, at CHML Bill Kelly. Your comments, your questions for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger to do with local politics, to do with what's going on at City Hall, or not going on at City Hall, as your uh, indication might be. You tell us what you uh, want to talk to the mayor about. We'll, we'll do that in a couple of minutes. We'll get into the queue right now, though, if you want to get in line to, to ask your question of uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, welcome back. Good to have you on the show today. Happy yeah, Valentine's happy Day. Happy Valentine's Day to one and all out there, and uh, to my wife, Diane, uh, First Lady Diane. Uh, happy Valentine's Day. To Lady Di. Lady Di. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on at City Hall. There are a couple of things that I want to get into with you, and I'm sure some of our listeners will in, in the matter of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and first of all, uh, I, I don't know how much uh, we're going to talk about LRT today. That's really going to be up to the question uh, that uh, the uh, questions rather that are going to be asked as uh, people call in here. But uh, there seem to be among some of the city councilors, anyway, some misunderstanding about exactly what happened when uh, Minister Del Duca was in here the other day and made the announcement about this revision mm-hmm. to our transit plan. And and a lot of questions that were asked, and uh, it got into a little farcical theater on Friday that you were not part of. But mm-hmm. but uh, the, the concerns here are, you know, who's paying for this, all this sort of stuff. Are, are you clear on what the minister was, was saying that day? Uh, absolutely clear, and I think uh, our, our city staff uh, have uh, clarified it as well. And uh, basically, it's, uh, you know, out of that billion dollars, uh, we can fund a, uh, uh, an A-line that uh, goes a long way up the mountain. Now, it may not get all the way from the waterfront all the way to the airport, but we think, we think it can. Uh, so the, uh, the money that uh, isn't going to be expended on a B-line spur will be expended on an A-line. So it's not complicated. Now, the, the question becomes is, you know, does it need to be designed and is there going to be public input? Of course, all of that has to happen yet. Uh, has the route been defined? No. Uh, the, the, the A-line was actually identified on Upper James in the 25-year Metrolinx plan yeah. just, just to put a marker on, you know, that there's going to be an A-line, but it hasn't been defined as being on Upper James necessarily. So there's a lot of work to be done on, on uh, getting that prepared and doing public consultation and communicating with councillors. Uh, I have to tell you that, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I did listen to Councillor Whitehead's, uh, you know, proclamations on this issue. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of it is theater. But, uh, you know, he was well aware that this was happening. Uh, I told him many, many months ago that uh, the, this A-line was in discussion and he was very supportive. He's argued, uh, you know, on many, many occasions that an A-line would uh, would serve the citizens of Hamilton and especially the mountain uh, spectacularly well. And I think that uh, that message has resonated. And, uh, and the province agrees. And so we're moving forward on, uh, you know, advancing the blast network, which I'm, I'm sure most people in the community don't understand. But the, the bottom line is it's, it's, it's a, enhanced it's, transit. It's enhanced transit everywhere. Uh, so not just in the lower city, but, uh, you know, it also included the mountain. Uh, we've already made investments on the mountain in the last two years. Uh, and we're going to continue. So uh, we're we're improving transit anywhere, and the A line will will take us a, a lot further towards advancing the blast network uh, as as council has has approved. So this is not unapproved things. Council seconded by Councillor Whitehead, Councillor Marula seconded by Councillor Whitehead said, "Let's advance the A line a couple of months ago, and let's get start working on it sooner rather than later." And here we are working on it sooner rather than later. Now. 
one of the reasons that the province or Metrolinx or whoever made the call that uh, that they didn't want to do the spur line down to the waterfront anymore from downtown was they said they they embarked on a feasibility study and said, now nah, this doesn't really make sense. There's going to be a feasibility study about uh, the A-line, too, heading sure. up to the airport. Um, is there a possibility that they may give a thumbs down to that once they start crunching some numbers? No, I don't think so. I mean, this is, uh, this is now enhanced or, you know, additional express dedicated lane in part uh, uh, bus transit. I think that it was already identified in the Metrolinx plan, and a, certainly a, a, a benefit analysis was done on an A-line going forward. Uh, now, now we need to get into the details. So I, I think, I mean, I, I, I credit the province for stepping back and saying, you know what, uh, the, there isn't value for money on the, on the spur line. Uh, the ridership just isn't there. It doesn't make economic sense. We can get more uh, out of that money by by extending the uh, the A line transit system all the way up into the mountain and from the waterfront. So, I think they've made a wise choice. I think that was a, a good decision on their part, and uh, it, it will improve our transit system. Well, I, I got the sense in talking to Paul Johnson uh, from the city staff that uh, the, the the spur line was kind of in, in tenuous situation anyway because. I think when the when the premier announced that that day that she was a McMaster and you were there, of course, mm-hmm. you came out on the show just after that and talked about the plan. Uh, we had envisioned that it was going to be like an LRT line that was going to get down to the waterfront, and then Paul Johnson says, "No, no, no, it's probably just going to be some enhanced transit situation like that." And I figure, well, we may as well just run buses up there. Then you don't really need to do that kind of work. So. I, I'm okay with this. Yeah, and but, I, I, but I just, you know, I, I do have some questions about the impact it's going to have. And I know as soon as you start mentioning vehicular traffic, some people just cringe and say, "Oh, there you go, you guys, you, lo- you hate transit." I love transit yep. if it's done properly. But you also have to make accommodation for the for the cars that are heading on. And I'm well, assuming Upper James will be the route. Yeah, well, maybe. Uh, you know, it could be could be West Fifth. Uh, I mean, a, a connection to Mohawk uh, makes perfect sense. Uh, that's where, where a lot of the volume comes from. So there's there's not not, not nothing saying that uh, those two options couldn't be considered as part of the the entire mix. And maybe it's part of both. Certainly, getting up the hill will land you right on uh, West or West Fifth for sure. Uh, so, and that's probably the more likely route to get directly up the mountain, up, uh, up the mountain access. So, uh, I would say the door is open to that. Um, uh, I, I think the, uh, I think the weak link in the announcement initially was the spur line. That, that was a concern for everyone, even though the province said we want a, a stronger connection to the go transit station, we can still do that with, uh, with a strong and, and enhanced bus network. So, uh, I think it was a wise choice. Uh, I support it. I think it makes sense. Lots of work to do to go go through design processes, public consultation. There'll be meetings up in the uh, the areas that are affected. Uh, that's all yet to be done. Uh, and uh, quite frankly, this could probably happen sooner than the LRT uh, in terms of uh, construction and design because it's not nearly as complicated and uh, and and uh, I can probably start work on that uh, sooner rather than later. Well, you're not going to dig holes. That's one thing. So that's going to save a lot of money. Well, there's still some uh, some dedicated laneway uh, you know issues, mm-hmm. but that uh, you know it's it's if you're not laying track, that certainly saves you a lot of money. 905-645-3221. That's our number. 645-3221. Star 9900. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here to uh, take your questions, your calls. This is the Bill Kelly Show here on 900 CHML. Uh, to the phones. John, you're first up on this. How are you this morning, John? Good. Yourself? Great. Go ahead for the mayor. Shining. Uh, I want to talk two questions, then I'll hang up. Uh, the Queenston Road, 55 Queenston Road, where the terminal's going to do. We hmm. got about $1.3 million in that. Is Metrolink buying it? Two. Are you Who talking about HSR or Metrolinx? Uh, Metrolinx. Five Queenston Road is up for sale. Right. Is that going to incorporate the whole terminal? 
Okay, I'm, I'm not sure what property you're talking about. Is it is it one right at the uh, the end of right right near the traffic circle? So we, the, the, there was the motor in that uh, we've already acquired. Uh, that will be acquired by Metrolinx. Uh, and there's a property right next to that. Is that the one you're talking about? I think we've lost them. We've lost them? Yeah, em? I heard a clunk there, so I think, well, I think the call so dropped. If it's going to be part of the uh, the terminal there, then uh, certainly it'll be a Metrolinx expense. Uh, I'm not sure how, how large. I mean, I haven't seen the final design on, uh, I don't think we have quite yet the final design on the terminal, the end terminal there. So I don't know how, how much land that's going to take up, but whatever is required will be uh, will be purchased by Metrolinx, and whatever's left over can be uh, you know put onto the private market. Now, the city owns that now. We own we own the motor in yeah the city the old city motor the hotel old, lot. The old city motor hotel lot we own uh, that'll be that'll be uh, purchased by Metrolinx for use for this project so we'll get we'll, we'll recover the money from that and then there there is a property right next to it which was a, a Herbie's once upon a time and uh, most recently a grocery it was the, store it was a grocery store and most recently was a gym and uh, you know indoor soccer. Uh, facility. Uh, it's now closed and uh, it is for sale. Uh, I'm not sure how much of it is required for this project. Thanks so much for the call, John. 645-3221, start 9900. Uh, as we continue, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is here. This is the Bill Kelly Show, 900 CHML with the Mayor's Town Hall. Uh, oh, by the way, email bkelly 900 chmlcom and of course on Twitter at CHML Bill Kelly for your questions, your comments for Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, so is is this LRT issue, LRT issue rather put to bed now? I mean, do, uh, do we know where we're going? Do we have council on side? Are we, or is this going to rear its ugly head once again with calls for let's do a vote on this, et cetera? I know you're going to have to vote on, on expenditures down the road, mm-hmm. but if, are, are we all on the same page now? Well, with one or two exceptions. I, I think I think uh, we're we're moving forward. Let me put it that way. I, we we know the votes have been had in terms of whether we should get into the uh, whole LRT process. That's happened uh, quite some time ago. That was uh, supported by council uh, at large, uh, almost unanimously, if I recall correctly. Yeah, but Councillor Whitehead now is saying that since they've changed the route, maybe just an up and down vote on this thing would change everything. No, I think I think what we said was that we were uh, we were we were going to advance with the province the uh, the development of the LRT. Uh, the LRT is still on on the books, and yes, it's, it's shortened on one hand and now has been added to in terms of the A line. But I don't think it's appreciably different. It's enhanced public transit. Uh, everyone says they support enhanced public transit. We're still working on enhanced public transit. Councillor Whitehead, as I said on a number of occasions, I don't want to sp- I don't want to spend all my time talking about Councillor Whitehead because I think he uh, he gets more attention on this than, he, than it deserves quite frankly. Uh, he's had more positions on this, I've said, than there are in the Kama Sutra. i got to get that one out there because yeah. I just love that line. So yeah, When you get a good line, you grab it. Yeah. You embrace it. But, but the, and, you know, unfortunately, the council had to look up what Kama Sutra was, but I, I think the, the, the point is that, you know, every day there's a different, t- different angle to this from, from some on council. And, you know, and, and at the same time still saying I support, uh, you know, enhanced public transit in, in the city of Hamilton. So, you know, I, I don't know how much credibility that has anymore. Uh, you know, certainly the folks that are listening out there, I think that I encourage them to participate in this process, uh, get information. There's lots of information out there. This is not being designed on the back of a napkin. It's very well thought out work uh, by some professionals that know exactly what they're doing in terms of transit and transportation. And, uh, you know, no one, including myself, is trying to get rid of the car. I mean, I'm a, I'm a car-oriented guy, as, as many people in our community are. Uh, we're trying to find that happy 
mix between public transit and automobile use and, and, uh, and, and cycling and mobility of all different kinds. And to do that, we, uh, we have underinvested in public transit for many years, as Toronto has, and we know what kind of tr- trouble Toronto is in now in terms of their transportation system. We don't want to be in that situation ourselves. So investment in public transit is a wise step for us to take. All right. Some of the suburban councillors, uh, Stony Creek, uh, Flamborough, uh, and a lot of the residents are, are in some of these areas mm-hmm. still have concerns. And, and the overriding question with them is, yeah, well, what's in this for us? Have we uh, have we allayed those fears or is it just uh, damn the torpedoes and full speed ahead? No, I think we could continue to con- communicate to folks. Uh, you know, Councillor Ferguson is one of the supporters of uh, public transit and LRT. And and his rationale is exactly my rationale, which is that what comes with LRT is significant inner city investment on existing infrastructure. So higher density development, renewal, that generates more tax revenue. That, That generating more tax revenue off of existing infrastructure in the inner city is a benefit to all taxpayers in our community. It takes the pressure off of all taxpayers in the suburban areas that are talking about, why am I paying for those kinds of services? Uh, why, why are my dollars going to things that aren't may, I, I may not be necessarily be getting? What they'll be getting out of this is a reduced tax pressure as a result of generating more revenue off of the existing infrastructure. That's uh, a wise step. Now, the other element here of some concern, we've got about a minute or so before we have to go to break here, is uh, the report that came to uh, the committee, uh, I guess it was a week or so ago, that talked about reduced ridership on public transit here in Hamilton. That's got to be a problem. Yeah, it is. Because I know the money you get from the uh, from the gas tax is directly related to the number of people that are riding public transit. True. And, and there are a number of factors that come into that. And we're not alone in that. I think many municipalities that are not in the kind of the high order transit scenario like Toronto or Vancouver uh, are experiencing the same challenges. And I think a lot has to do with the price of gas and people making different choices. Uh, you know, when the price of gas goes uh, up, people uh, tend to buy smaller cars. And, uh, you know, there's a, there's a direct correlation to that. Uh, when the price of gas goes down, then people, uh, you know, tend to buy bigger, bigger vehicles. And, and the same applies in transit. When, uh, when, the, when the costs are up, people make choices to use public transportation because it can save them some money. Uh, when it's down, uh, you know, they think, well, maybe I, can, uh, I, I don't have to take the transit system. I'll use my car a little bit more. So I think, I think there's direct relations as to what's happening in the economy. Uh, I think that's going to change. I think as we improve our transit system and make it more reliable, and this is one of the bigger issues, reliability. And we're not there yet in terms of our own transit system as it sits today. The moment it becomes more reliable and people can predict uh, the timelines it's going to take for them to get to A to A, from A to B, uh, they'll start using it a lot more. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and President Donald Trump issued a joint statement yesterday uh, reaffirming the bond between Canada and the U.S. This comes after a meeting yesterday in Washington, of course. Well, uh, what's the fallout from this? Uh, how did things go? Uh, there was an awful lot of anticipation about this, as well, on this side of the border anyway. Joining us to talk about this is Barry Kay, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, thank you so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Were you watching with bated breath as uh, just about everybody up here was about this in anticipation of what might happen? Well, yeah, no, I guess we were we were concerned that uh, somehow... Uh the uh, the prime minister would make some misstep as the Australian prime minister had and, and offend uh, and offend the uh, 
the bull in the china shop um it turned out that things went fine you know it's it's funny though even though it happened yesterday it seems like a week ago because <laughs> so so much has happened since but uh you know no no the 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 event uh, i think that went very well and i think it's not just um trudeau but indeed the the people planning around him uh people like butts and uh, and katie telford that are in the uh the the prime minister's staff they set it up in a way that indeed it became very appealing to uh, to trump the idea of having this joint uh women's uh, w- women's conference of business, women, female business leaders in the uh, U.S. and Canada. Very much it appealed to Trump's daughter Ivanka, who's very close to his heart, and that and she she pushed it, and it meant that the the thing was going to go swimmingly. We weren't we were net. You can never be certain with Trump, of course, as to whether things are going to go swimmingly or not. But it, it went went flawlessly, and I, I think it was uh, very much a plus. We are not in the uh, in the the. Um, the doghouse with Mexico, we'll, we're happy to know, as uh, as some of us might have been concerned about when uh, Trump starts talking about renegotiating NAFTA. But, you know, it was interesting, Barry, especially on this side of the border. And I, you read all the papers and the pundits that were on all the talk shows on, on, on CTV and CBC and, and Global and elsewhere. And and there, there was this trepidation, like, oh, my God, you know, first, you know, Kevin O'Leary classed us as basically, you know, that he was going to get slaughtered by Trump. Uh Nobody was talking about this down in the states. I mean, it was not on any of the political shows. None of the newspapers seemed to care about it. it didn't get mentions at all over the weekend. Uh, very few mentions, even on Monday morning, uh, about this, which I kind of looked at as a good sign. In other words, usually, uh, if, if if the Trump administration wants to bang somebody around, they'll 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 let the media know that hey, wait till I get my hands on him, or wait till I have to say to this. I I don't think I think it was much ado about nothing the way that the Canadian media tried to pump this thing up. Well, it, that's natural that they want to sort of lead stories that are that pertain to us. Look, with Trump, there's always news. It's always chaos. It seems. I mean, we've uh, had the better part of a month of this now, and it's not going away. It's it's only getting worse. No, I, I quite agree, though, that the uh, the best the best news for Canada is no news at all. Uh, if in fact they, they, there's, the Americans aren't thinking about it, it's actually in our interest because Trump has found so many other enemies to pick on, uh, and that I'm glad that uh, I, I, one can never be certain, as I just mentioned, you know, ahead of time as to what's going to happen because he, he's so. Uh, driven by his impulse and the whim of the moment. But, uh, no, I I think that the whole matter went very well. No, I I was listening to the American coverage of the event um, as it was going on, and what they were talking about was not so much the Canadian story, but in the question-and-answer period afterward, that, in fact, the uh, American news people that were called upon were very low-level people. One was a local news reporter in Washington. Another was um, an uh, an online service. People that Trump felt would ask non-embarrassing questions, because what he was most concerned about, it seems, was the, the whole issue with regard to Flynn, which, of course, blew up at the end of the day anyway. Um, whereas the Canadian uh, interviewers, uh, Tana McCharles was one of them, uh, the, and there was a Quebec uh, journalist as well. Mm-hmm. The Canadian inter- uh, questioners did ask questions which could have created problems, but uh, Trudeau went out of his way to deflate them. He uh, suggested that, indeed, it wasn't his role to, um, to lecture the, uh, the American uh, president. Um, and even though that had, had, I guess, a potential double entendre, suggesting maybe there was something to be lectured about, but he wasn't going to do it. So that kind of played to those Canadians who were very troubled by Trump. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, no, I think it was, uh, the tour de force may be too strong, but it certainly was a successful outing for the Prime Minister. Yeah, I know there was one criticism I saw, it, again, that they kind of cut the, the the media part of that. But that was because of, I think, Trump's nervousness about, like you say, questions about Flynn. And let's get out of here before they start doing that. And, and if you watch the end of that, I mean, they were yelling the questions at him as the two of them were leaving the, the, uh, the room there. So that, that was clearly the intention. I don't think it was a slight against the prime minister at all. 
No, no, no. But uh, Trump very much avoided the national reporters in the states who would have asked much more uh, d- difficult and challenging questions. Yeah, and he's, uh, he's going to do that for the next three and a half years, isn't he? So far, <laughs> we'll see. I don't know. I mean, people are starting to bet on whether or not he's going to last three and a half years. But nonetheless, I, I don't perhaps want to get too far ahead of ourselves on that, uh, because the, this, uh, this Flynn thing is by no means over. Uh, this is just really the beginning. Uh, the question will become, um, what did the president know and when did he know it? Um, there is evidence now that, uh, again, what, what seems to have brought um, uh, Flynn down wasn't so much that he lied to the, the vice president, but that, in fact, the, because that, had, that was known for the better part of a month, that, in fact, the lies were now public, that the Washington Post and other, other newspapers had, uh, had picked them up. And it seems that as far back as January 23rd, there were reports to the, um, the White House that, um, that, that Flynn was uh, subject to, to blackmail by the Russians. And that was the better over three weeks ago. Um, and they've just basically sat on it all along until the Washington Post start, and others started breaking stories. And again, that's the other interesting thing about what's going on in Washington is the, the, it's, it's, it's the leakiest sieve ever. Uh, all sorts of people are telling all sorts of stories. Obviously, people within the White House office telling stories to embarrass other people in the White House office. And uh, boy, I mean, I guess at one level it's fun, but it's really crazy. Well, and it is bizarre. And I mean, just the phrase you used a second ago, what did the president know and how soon did he know it? And uh, I mean, you know, you get flashbacks all of a sudden of, of Watergate, of, of the, you know, the Iran-Contra deal uh, under the Reagan administration. And, and you got to wonder if, if, like I say, when's the other shoe going to drop here? This isn't going away. Um, and indeed, the, what's been interesting in the first three and a half weeks is that uh, Republicans have basically sort of blinded their eyes to everything. It's almost like the, the emperor's new clothes. They don't want to see the problems that are out there. Uh, at some point, and maybe this is the point, that indeed it's going to be difficult for them to keep ignoring the chaos that's coming out of the White House. Let's, uh, I'll go back to the, to the meeting and the, the... And, and we understand that when the world leaders get together, I mean, the, the spade work and all the heavy lifting is done by their staffs and, and, and by others in here. How important was it for, uh, for instance, Christian Freeland and Bill Morneau and, and, uh, and uh, Defense Minister Sajid to, to go there the week before and kind of lay the groundwork for this? Look, uh, they most of them have decent relationships. Uh, Christopher Freeland, of course, had been a uh, sort of a public intellectual and media figure in the States. Yeah, she's, she's not new to them, is she? Uh, and that, that's that's part of the reason why Dion got the boot. In fact, she came in as as uh, the foreign affairs minister. Uh, oh, I, I think all of this is important. Um, and indeed, uh, you know, these events normally are just full of platitudes, talking about the world's uh, longest, un, uh, you know, undefended border and the, the reference to Churchill and all of that. This has gone on for years when there have been meetings between Canada and the United States. Um, my hunch is again, we we didn't know during the uh, the press conference what how how serious things were for Flynn and for uh, for Trump. But indeed, in hindsight, Trump clearly had other things on his mind, and that he probably just couldn't wait for the whole this matter to get over, to get away from the press, and to sort of carry on, hoping that the the, the other issue wouldn't drop in that matter and that uh, it wouldn't blow up. It turned out it did blow up later in the day. No, look, this this was well done by the, the by the Trudeau staff. <clears throat> it's good news for Canada. That Trump does not seem to have us in his in his um, uh, eyesight in terms of targets for for trade. Um, I think the um, the approach to uh, Ivanka Trump was probably a very important element as well. Uh, that all of that was very very well planned out. But again, with Trump, one just never knows what what in fact may offend him or what may cause him to blow up. And I, I as much as I know, there's been so many things with Trump, but the fact that he would sort of pick a fight with the Australians <laughs> just blew me away. I just couldn't begin to fathom that. And when one sees that kind of thing be possible. 
uh, even though we're a little closer, we're the same guy, the same kind of relationship with the U.S. that Australia has. One can never be certain that uh, that Trump wouldn't have uh, caused. Found, found something to, to take offense at and to blow up during the meeting. Fortunately, it went well, and, and the Trudeau staff should be very happy with the event. I it was not lost on me, and I'm sure on others, that uh, that when they did the, the, the media portion of this uh, yesterday afternoon, when the two of them were at the, each other's podium, uh, he was reading script, uh, and he stayed on script, which he rarely does, uh, because he usually uh, gets in trouble when he starts going off script and just kind of meandering back and forth. But he, he seemed to be looking down at his papers just about through that whole presentation that he made. Uh, it got a little bit crazy with the two questions, but as you say, the two questions were softballs. But it was almost as if you know he was under orders, or not that anybody orders him around, I guess, but to, to just look at, don't do something crazy here, because we don't want to you know blow this guy off like we did with the, the Australian Prime Minister. Yeah, no, he, he has a head reasons to be tense and uncertain. Um, he makes fewer mistakes when he's on script. Look, look the, the other thing, uh, Trudeau just looks so much more polished than he did anyway. Even if Trudeau was reading, it looked like he wasn't, that he was bilingual, that he was articulate. Uh, Trudeau just came off so much better than, than Trump did, certainly in the eyes of Canadians, which are the ones that, that uh, he would be most concerned about. Uh, you know, so again, this was sort of a, a good day. But in general, I'm, I'm not at all troubled. I think you mentioned it as well, when the Americans don't pay too much attention to us. Uh, and, and certainly during the Trump presidency, that, that's going to be good news for us. Well, and again, go to, to the body language aspect of this whole thing, too. When, uh, when Prime Minister Trudeau started uh, answering in French, uh, Trump seemed totally, totally disinterested. He didn't even put his earpiece in initially, yep. as if I don't. I, I, I certainly doesn't. I don't think he understands French. Uh, but he just does. You know that that's not my question. That's not my answer. So I'm just. He's kind of looking around the room. It's rather bizarre, really. Absolutely. Uh, the, the big takeaway, I think, as far as Canada is concerned, though, because you know, we're always concerned uh, about trade with these two countries, and, and that's a legitimate concern, I think, given you know the numbers that we've seen, and that I guess that that the Canadian team kind of presented to their to their American counterparts over the last couple of weeks. But the fact that he says he's only going to wants to tweak uh, NAFTA as opposed to tear it up that that's got to be a win for the for I would think the Canadian team. Sure. Look, the trade deficit between Canada and the U.S., we sell them a little bit more than they sell us. But the difference is something like 2%. With Mexico, by contrast, it's 10%. And indeed, with some of the countries in Asia, especially Japan, but especially China, it's something like four times as much. Um, he has very little reason to be troubled about the, the Canadian deficit. Moreover, um, that indeed, uh, what I think the figure that was used was that there are 35 states in the U.S. whose primary export country is Canada, and among those are the are the states that are most pivotal politically. States like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Ohio, and so forth, uh, that are very very important. And indeed, um, should there have been an attempt to, to to get tough with Canada, there would I think have been much more blowback from the the political figures and governors in those border states in the Midwest and the uh, the eastern part of the uh, the United States. Um, anyway, all of that was set up ahead. Uh, well done, and, and indeed, I'm I'm just repeating myself, but uh, you know, I, I think it was a a very a very good event from our point of view. This is this is not to suggest that this is all going to be you know hugs and kisses for the next uh, you know number of years. I mean, I'm sure there are going to be some rough spots in the relationship, but what what kind of a relationship can you see Trudeau and Trump developing here? I mean, because you know, we, we've seen some ugly ones in the past. I mean, obviously, you look at the Mulroney-Reagan thing that went on. I mean, the, you know, and then, of course, Justin Trudeau with Obama. But, I mean, Jean Chrétien and, and Bush not getting along with each other, and uh, certainly Lyndon Johnson, if you want to go back historically, and, and uh, Lester Pearson. Uh, 
uh, it got pretty messy there as well, too. Can can they develop a relationship, any, a, a professional relationship at any level? Oh, hopefully it'll be correct. I wouldn't expect anything more than that. I, I don't think Trump is the kind of person that really warms up to many people and certainly doesn't trust many people. Historically, uh, the best relationships have usually been liberals with Democrats and um, conservatives with Republicans, uh, the Mulroney-Reagan uh, being an example of that, and Chrétien Clinton as well. Um, but I, again, I don't think they necessarily have to always be on, on the best of terms. The fact, a lot of the decisions are actually going to be made at the sub, uh, the sub leader level, and that indeed, if uh, in defense, um, in trade, in uh, the economics ministry with with Morneau, and certainly certainly with um, Christopher Freeland, if they are getting on well with the. Um, corresponding figure in the United States, and issues come up, they can get on the phone I, 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 the, and basically try to iron things out. I wouldn't expect, there, although Trump has been invited to Canada, I'm not sure that that's going to happen anytime soon. He inevitably is going to face protests, and uh, I think Trudeau had to do that, but I think they both understand that this isn't something that necessarily is going to go swimmingly, swimmingly if, if Trump should be in a, in a public situation. I'm sure he's going to get an awful lot of blowback. I think that'll be true in a lot of other places, too. England's another place he's been invited to. Um, I'm not sure that the a, a tight relationship between the president and the prime minister is essential. Um, it would be nice, um, but as long as things are correct, and so long as at the ministerial level that there seem to be good relations, and as you mentioned, those are already being, being worked upon, I think that's where a lot of potential problems are going to emerge. Look, there are some areas of trade where, in fact, Canada could be vulnerable. Uh, one is softwood lumber, although that's, that's not such an issue for Ontarians. Um, another is agricultural products. Another might be steel. This uh, Trump's suggestion that, indeed, he wants American steel in, the, uh, in that Keystone pipeline, although there's some World Trade Organization issues there, too. Uh, I, I, one shouldn't think that everything is just going to go terrifically all the time. But I don't think Canada is, is sort of in the, the sites to be targeted for particular trouble with uh, the Trump administration. It's, uh, in hindsight, a rather interesting, I guess, and instructive to see the, uh, the cabinet shuffle that, that went on here a few weeks ago, though, Barry, and, and, and how they interacted. I mean, and you just mentioned, like, the big three, uh, you know, Foreign Affairs Minister Christia Freeland, who sp- uh, spent a lot of time in New York and Washington, of course, before she came back here and, and ran for public office. Uh, you've got uh, the Defense Minister Sajan, of course, and his counterpart's an old uh, ex-Army guy, as he is. And, and then, of course, you've got Bill Morneau, who's w- known on Wall Street and Bay Street. So it's almost as if he, he's designed this team to try to work with the, the American administration. Oh, very much. Uh, very much. Uh, and indeed, there are, there are going to be some pressures. I think he would like to see uh, one, one area where we very much underperform in the eyes of the Americans. We're a bit of a free rider with regard to defense. He would like to see us upping our input into uh, NATO commitment. And we may do it a little bit, uh, but to suggest that we're going to double. Uh, we're, we're just, just, it, this is big money when we start talking about defense. I don't think the Americans will ever be pleased with what the Canadian commitment is entirely. I think we'll probably move in that direction. In fact, perhaps it's suggested that the, uh, the commitment to uh, an African country, I think it was Mali, that uh, with the Canadian troops were set to go to, that they may get re- redeployed to, um, uh, into Europe, uh, although we're going to be involved, it looks like, in, um, in Latvia as well. Uh, there are things that the Americans will ask of us that we're not going to be particularly forthcoming. We're not going to increase significantly our military commitment as, as an example. But indeed, as long as we sort of move in that direction, I'd like to think that the Americans aren't going to particularly target us and go after us, and certainly not with regard to the trade issues, which really are important to our economy. Uh, so much more to talk about as this unfolds. I, I kind of get the sense that we've kind of left this situation now as we're going to be neighbors that we're going to wave at each other every now and then, but we're yeah. not going to be heading over for drinks in the backyard in the summertime. 
Certainly, yeah, n- not not with Trump, and maybe at some other levels, though, good relationships will will deploy. No, yeah, yesterday went well. We should be happy. Uh, better for us than I think for the uh, the White House office, which sort of is very much in turmoil, and that's only going to get worse. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Jason Farr is the counselor for Ward Two, uh, of course, in uh, the downtown area, Hamilton. I got a couple of issues I wanted to uh, talk, Counselor Farr, but he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to give us some updates on this. Counselor Farr, how are you doing today? Very good, Bill. Happy Valentine's, and to you too, and uh, and to your family. Uh, listen, let's let's get into the <laughs> let's build let's build a wall. No, that's not that wall. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the one on James Street down by the uh, the GO station. Uh, this is something that's going to be coming up. Uh, it is a little tired. It is a little sad. What's the status, and and what are you going to do about it? Uh, well, we're going to uh, put a, a mural back where a, mur- a mural still exists, but uh, yeah, it's a bit shabby. Uh, it was, I think, back in 2006 that uh, a nice mural was painted up and yeah. in a great spot, a bit of a gateway going into our downtown right under the, the uh, underpass of the uh, rail uh, there. And uh, so we have... Uh, uh, a stakeholder group that uh, met in September. They've come up with some themes for this particular mural. Well, we don't know what exactly it's going to look like. We do know the themes, and we have a budget that uh, requires a, a little bit extra, $7,500. And so what's before us on Wednesday is uh, an approval to use the uh, public art reserve to fund the overage. This is a, a very timely discussion. I, I was Just yesterday I was talking with Council Marula about uh, his, his efforts to try to clean up some of the graffiti that uh, that is starting to pop up again too, and and of course any discussion you have about graffiti, which is a crime by the way, it's vandalism. That's that's mm-hmm. you know, but it, it it does morph off. obviously it morphs into a street art, and um, this is a great example of street art. And it, they, I I remember having the discussion with you. I think back when they painted this thing in the first place, that we should be doing more of that. Why hasn't that happened? Why, it just seems as if there's not really much of an uptake on this in this city, but we see it in a lot of other cities. Uh, well, it, it, it has happened. Certainly, uh, it's not a regular occurrence. I got a really good example, actually, Bill, from last summer, where we um, had a, a historically uh, a, a graffiti spot along uh, the base of the Claremont and adjacent to uh, Carter Park. And I worked with uh, the Stinson Neighborhood Association, other residents through our public budgeting. We uh, were able to fund a, a massive mural. And you know, uh, Council Marula knows that uh, it is something we could do more because it you, you tend to. Um, mitigate the issue greatly or just eliminate the issue of graffiti when you put these murals up in traditionally uh, graffiti-ridden areas. And certainly since the erection of this wonderful, if people haven't seen it, just take a quick drive uh, east down Stinson from Wellington, and it is uh, really a showpiece in uh, the uh, recently revamped Carter Park, and it has got a bit of a sports theme. There's birds, there's trees. But since um, we installed that piece of graffiti, with the same tech we'll be using on this particular project on James Street South, there's been no graffiti where graffiti used to run rampant. So it actually works to deter graffiti, and also it's aesthetically pleasing and meets uh, one of our four pillars of sustainability. <laughs> so it does a lot of things, and it certainly uh, is something that we could do more of, so I'd agree with you on that. You work, I would assume, with the BIAs to, to try to, to promote and, and encourage people to do this sort of thing? 
Oh, yeah. And, and on this particular project, uh, as I said, there was a focus group that included members of the BIA uh, in September, uh, merchants from James Street South as well. Um, the location, it's a gateway to the neighborhood, as I said. It's a, a theme that's going to uh, focus on a natural character of the street and then the geographic connection between the escarpment and the downtown build between the historic grade and the current street level. So there's a lot of work that the stakeholder group has done to get to this point, and, and the focus is also going to be on the, the the architectural heritage of the area in, in Durand and Corktown is uh, specific to where we're talking about. You, you mentioned uh, there's still some discussion about exactly what's going to be painted on this thing. Uh, do, does the city have input into this, or is that up to the artist's creativity? How do, how do you work that out? Well, we have it with the artists, Will, but, but based on those themes aforementioned, uh, the artists uh, receive a call. We do a call for artists when we do public art processes. And uh, they're to follow the theme uh, when they submit their proposals by uh, a, 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 a date not too many months after the call out. So we hope that with approval at Council next week, ultimately GIC Wednesday Council next Wednesday, in the few weeks that follow, we'll do the call out to artists and we'll ask those artists in that public art call uh, to uh, make sure you uh, are in keeping with the theme that the stakeholder group devised with staff back in September. Uh, just getting an email here from Gary, who's listening to the conversation, saying his favorite one is the one in the International Village. Yeah, the, the, he's talking about the train wreck, I guess, uh, that's on the side of the wall there, the mural. Uh, that uh, that of course depicts the uh, the famous train wreck that occurred right there on Ferguson Avenue many years ago, uh, yeah. I, and I agree. I think there, there could be and should be an awful lot more of these because I've seen in other cities uh, we've seen this stuff, and it, it really does enhance the streetscape. Yeah, lots of folks. Uh, you know, you don't have to, and maybe people don't know this, so it's a good time to mention. You don't have to work with uh, you know our our our, our great Ken Coint in uh, uh, our, our culture division, who does a fabulous job on on public art installs, and we've had well, we got two coming in 2017 in downtown, but across the downtown throughout our city, and eight public art projects have been installed in our downtown uh, since 2012. Ken Coit's been behind the process on a lot of these. He hasn't chosen the artwork that's done by the stakeholders, but uh, he does the call-outs. He works with these stakeholder groups, and uh, he does a terrific job. But but you could be a private business with a building, and you decide, hey, you know what? A mural would look good here. It may even call attention to my business. Uh, and you can participate on your own public art project if it's your own uh, um, uh, building. And, and some have done that in the core and around the city. Uh, there's a good one over at Gage Park by, I think it's a printing uh, a firm that uh, got a lot of attention about three years ago. And interestingly enough, it's uh, facing the wrong way on uh, the one-way Main Street in front of Gage Park, but people still stop and look, and uh, a lot of pedestrians enjoy that particular uh, privately driven uh, public art piece hanging on the wall of a private business. So it, there's no uh, stopping people if they want to dress up their own business or their own residence with uh, public art, and certainly I always encourage that. With uh, downtown councillor Jason and far. Speaking of painting things, uh, Councillor, sure. uh, yesterday in the program, uh, Deirdre uh, okay. Pike was on, and uh, there, there was, and th- this is of course to do with the, the crosswalk, the proposed crosswalk, of course, down by Theodore Aquarius, the LGBTQ mm-hmm. uh, colors, uh, the, uh, the pride flag uh, colors anyway. Uh, at that time, Deirdre, I'm sure you've heard the interview since then, uh, has raised some concerns about uh, the process and perhaps there wasn't enough consultation. My understanding is that you've, uh, you're about to rectify that anyway. Absolutely, and based on the interview you had with Deidre at 9, I, I, I heard it in its totality. I've uh, communicated with Deidre since. I've also talked to one of the members of the two members from council that are on uh, our LGBTQ advisory committee. I've, I've, I've joined that committee in the past 
uh, not long ago. And uh, uh, to that end, I, I certainly do appreciate the work they do. And and uh, while I'll admit to, and I'm only one board member of the International Village, and I'm a voting board member on BIAs when I sit at those tables, uh, I will admit to... Um, you know, all good intentions, 100% good intentions when we put the, the provincial bid to get the funds to make this crossing uh, happen as part of a provincial Canada 150 project. Uh, but uh, hearing the comments made by Deidre, having communicated now with Deidre and with Councillor Aiden Johnson, uh, certainly, and, and particularly listening to your show, um, the message is loud and clear. The, the, the last thing we want to do is participate in a project, or at least the last thing I want to be associated with as one member of the International Village BIA is to be associated with a project that's ruffling some uh, feathers. And she, she had some great comments, and we've had uh, some correspondence. We're going to now take it to the next level, have members of the LGBTQ Advisory uh, Committee meet with members of our International Village BIA. I, I, I'm not on public works bill, but uh, having heard your interview, I dropped a few meetings, sat in when the motion came forward that Councillor Collins and uh, Councillor Marula agreed to move on behalf of the BIA. I spoke to a tabling. They agreed to table. Nobody really spoke to it other than tabling it and mentioning that I heard the comments loud and clear. And it, it was loud and clear that we need to sit and dialogue with the right uh, advisory committee on this before any action is taken, if any action will be taken. Yeah, I, I saw some of the online comments uh, on social <laughs> media, and, and some people were characterizing uh, Deirdre's comments as being opposed to this idea. That's not the case at all. No. Uh, she just maybe that's not the best location maybe this should be and and it's this is right in the wheelhouse of that subcommittee anyway and it probably should have gone there in the first place but i don't think anybody intentionally tried to to, no. to sniff them i think it was just a matter of oversight uh, absolutely i mean we we sat with uh you know one of our board members was the proprietor of the establishment at that particular art walk intersection uh, and uh, my understanding is, and I wasn't at the meeting when they talked about it, but I certainly supported the project, um, um, that uh, the, the uh, LGBTQ safe space establishment has since closed, but it was certainly open when we initially devised this plan, and we appreciated the input from uh, our member of the BIA at the time. And, uh, and, and, and you know, I can tell you, International Village, and you know it well, Bill, very inclusive. I mean, you know, the name International Village speaks volumes in itself, but it is such a great and effective BAA, and they work so very hard, and they're very, very inclusive. So, again, all good intentions. Uh, sometimes great ideas meet uh, some uh, perfectly uh, suitable and uh, understandable opposition, and in this case, it comes from a very informed source. So, you know, I've spoken to Susie Braithwaite. She came back to the office today, and we're going to meet between now and uh, Council, and if some understanding can be had, then we'll certainly we'll report on that in a week's time. But uh, I appreciated everything that was said, even a few of the comments. I even retracted my comment to the to the CDC about, I mean, I added one of the positive elements of the Rainbow Crossing at uh, Ferguson and King William was it, it could uh, positively affect traffic safety and pedestrian safety ultimately because of the, the colorful intersection. It would slow traffic down maybe even further unless, you know, uh, uh, coasts through uh, stop signs at a uh, increasingly busy pedestrian intersection. That wasn't appreciated. I didn't understand why immediately. I totally understand now, and so I've retracted those comments. And I apologize for them. I, I do, by the way, we just had the mayor on at the first part of the program here, and uh, we had a caller that was asking, well, they didn't like this whole idea. Uh, I, th I think it's a good idea. Are you uh, supportive or at least open to the idea of, of maybe even expanding this program to other groups that might be interested in doing something like this? 
Oh, absolutely. It's 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 to me uh, important to be inclusive when we and you know to go full circle on your your conversation with me today when we talk about things that uh, add to the vitality and uh, the enhancement of the the feel. We don't want our citizens to be disaffected as they roam about our downtowns, not just this downtown. And so when we consider public art, and this can be considered public art, painting the intersection, we should also be very very inclusive. Because because when people stop and look at something different like this, uh, in terms of it's not your usual intersection, or when they stop and look at public art, they talk to one another and they think bigger and they appreciate uh, the message. And of course, in this case, the message was all based on good intentions and it was one of inclusiveness from the BIA. Uh, before I let you go, let me also ask you about another issue that's been in the news the last couple of days that's uh, also in your backyard. Uh, what's going on on Hess Street? I mean, there was a, supposed to be a cleanup. We're told that's not happening. I'm told now that there's a possibility of a sale of property going on. Uh, what's, what's the status of, of, of the North End there? You know, I'd be willing to do a weekly Jay's Potpourri segment on your show. <laughs> There's, there seems to be a lot lately. Uh, yesterday alone, it's a very good question. There's a delay in the cleanup. Uh, the cleanup is 138,000. The contract has been awarded. It was to start yesterday, Bill, and that this is all uh, associated to the 50 or so barrels that were toppled yeah. over. Uh, much to the chagrin of many, uh, many were uh, confused, upset by the uh, perception and the issues that may have related in terms of environment and public safety. Uh, so I called last year after that vandalism incident occurred, and we still, I don't believe, have caught the perpetrators or know who they may or may not be associated with. But I got together in uh, room 264 right away with uh, public health, with uh, economic development, urban renewal, with planners, uh, legal, and a big help was the outgoing uh, Larry Friday from taxation. He's very, very adept at our, our uh, industrial properties, and this one's been through three tax, tax sales in the in the past. And we said, let's brainstorm here. What are the short-term solutions to uh, make sure we can make this property safer? And what are some long-term ideas, uh, in, in, in particularly when you think about the the future of the Barton Tiffany lands and the proximity of 249 has, in fact, it's adjacent to all of those lands. You may recall the stadium, uh, stadium debate. These are those lands. Yeah, I heard of that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, the future uh, of the lands in terms of commercial uh, residential development, this falls right in line with the OMB, December 12th, uh, 2012 uh, 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 settlement on the setting sale secondary plan, and there there is a commercial use. And if it was consolidated with the rest of the lands in that area, does that bring some value? And is it worth the conversation to vest the property? But on the cleanup, uh, February twenty third, Bill, it will take a week, and uh, certainly it's by uh, the partnerships and the conversations we've had, and in accordance with the demands of the Ministry of the Environment. They've been a great partner in this and other properties in this area. Now I know that you can't get into specifics or, or start throwing numbers around, but I, I know that, uh, that, as you mentioned, back in, in 2015, uh, just as a matter of fact, uh, almost two years ago, because it was in February of 2015, uh, you did put this thing up for sale and you had no takers. I, I'm, no. I'm hearing that, that there's a great deal of interest in this land right now. Is, is, is that fair to say? I've heard the same. Um, I've heard from um, one staffer about another individual uh, who came forward. Uh, there was one prior 
who came forward. You're right, though. They didn't come forward the last time we did a tax sale. But there's a really good example of uh, changing uh, investment mood on, on former industrial sites, Bill. And I think you talked about it about six months ago, and that relates to, you know, almost the same distance from the, the new GO station, but to the east and 245 Cath, ironically, uh, same owner. Uh, and we did a tax sale where people lined up uh, and actually purchased it after two failed attempts in the past. Um, and I think a big reason is, you know, people are seeing all of the economic development in and around these areas, including 249 Hess, but at 245 Catherine. And what we have now is a buyer who's assembling a bigger piece of land. I've already had a meeting with the residents and uh, the representative from, from this buyer. Uh, they've talked about initial thoughts and plans. They took a lot of input from uh, the Beasley neighborhood folks, people that lived on John Street and on Catherine Street. And uh, for the most part, it was very great early, early engagement uh, that painted the picture, literally painted the picture of what will be versus what uh, the, especially the nearby residents have had to endure with that hot spot, so to speak, uh, for so many years now. Well, just try to connect the dots here. I mean, you know, time and place, I guess, is everything when these things are happening. And in 2015, uh, I mean, the, you had talked, but I mean, there was no solid plan as of yet for, for the redevelopment of that Tiffany neighborhood. But you've got something right now. You've got a, yes. a, apparently a lot of consensus on this uh, from a lot of the neighbors now. And it, it, it does jive with setting sail. And you've got the stuff that's going on at Pier 7 and 8 right now. I, I would think that this, uh, you, you put this up uh, on the block once again. You're going to get phone calls this time. Yeah, and, and, you know, staff are recommending, we're dealing with this tomorrow, uh, a vesting of the property, so take it into the city ownership, and and that's part of the recommendation. We have uh, recent proof that there is interest, and like you say, and it's a very good point, uh, the last time we talked about a tax sale on this property, it may have been just after or just before, but... You know, the vision of Barton Tiffany, well, we hadn't gone through all those public meetings. We hadn't had all that input. Uh, we may have had just received an approval on the setting sale secondary plan, but the vision, oh, yes, it's it's so much more today than it uh, was two, three years ago. Well, I, w- so I would even... Absolutely, I would, there's value. I would consider that maybe it's not even a vision anymore. It's a plan. Yeah, yeah well, it is. You're right. I, we, should, see, we shouldn't be speaking in terms of what could be. We uh, What will be is more like it. So, so that looks like a positive move. Then, obviously, the cleanup, uh, and and if I, now I'm I'm assuming then that uh, if in fact this thing does get put up for sale, uh, that you recoup your money, at least part of your money, anyway, about the cleanup costs. Well, very good point. I'm glad you mentioned it. It's exactly what happened over at 245 Catherine, the example I used just minutes ago, and uh, and, and that's a big uh, that'll be a big conversation piece, I'm sure, tomorrow. And I, I think there'll be some good questions from my colleagues and the mayor uh, with respect to uh, vesting. Hey, why do you want to do that? Well, we can show that you know there's 380k outstanding by this property owner, so these are orders and fines that uh, were never carried out, never paid, and so they go on uh, you know are on the tax roll of this particular individual and ultimately if this particular individual were to sell he'd be required through law to pay us back uh that hasn't happened um if we vested it and uh you know i don't want to say flipped because there may be uh other options and uh, uh opportunities to be discussed in in near future so uh what i can say is we do see that there is great value uh, and uh, uh, it would be a smart move to uh, put it in our purview. And we only have until, I think it's February 25th, Bill, uh, to make that decision as a council. So I, it's on uh, 
uh, our agenda for tomorrow. I think it'll be a great discussion, and I, 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 the staff I've spoken to who are authors of this report uh, are making a very uh, uh, wise argument to, to the vesting of this property. Particularly, uh, one of the arguments that should stand out is we are recouping uh, what we've paid into uh, environmental enforcement to date. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.